Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and get started now. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Sensibly Loud Radio. This is Be Easy Brandon, and I'm joined by the mountainous of Carl's, Mountain Carl. Carl, how's it going? It's going great, Be Easy. I, uh, I went to an SMU football game for the first time this year, and uh, since they are officially ranked, and uh, I am I'm very, very excited to tell you that we won last night which is an, a rarity for someone who's been a follower of theirs for the past 10 years. And uh, that was a real nail biter, man. Uh, that was, that was a lot of grit, a lot of, a lot of play calling that was pretty shoddy and uh, just, you know, by sheer will alone, they were able to pull it out, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So if you're in the DFW area and you like to go see some mediocre football followed by a lot of heart, go see SMU play uh they're they're a lot of fun the games are actually pretty enjoyable everybody left uh kind of like right at that that halfway mark because we were so far behind and uh and when we started like double overtime or whatever people started filtering back in so it was kind of a weird scene but yeah everybody was like migrating from one end zone to the other it was almost like it was a real football game so it's uh it's nice for Dallas for the first time in a long time to really acknowledge that they've got a D1 school playing football in their backyard and for uh, SMU to actually acknowledge that they are indeed in Dallas and that they're working together for the same end. So it's been a, it's been a great, great time. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, I'm biased. I graduated from there. So it's, uh, it's nice to see them actually doing something again. Yeah. How many games have you been to total or can you even have you lost count? I've lost count. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've, I went to, uh, we, we get season tickets every year. Okay. So, so we like to go to as many home games as we can. Obviously this year is harder than most, but it's been, uh, it's been, it's been a good experience overall. Um, they, they treat us well, you know, regardless of how they treat the, the football team or, or everything like that, or the administration or anything, but it's, it's been a, it's been a good experience. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's cheap football. It's D one right in your backyard. So you can't, you can't not afford to go to a game. It's, it's, it's an easy night out. So how about you, man? What have you been up to? You go to some, uh, some bars this weekend? Yeah, I did. Uh, which I, yeah, by the way, I was over my parents' house, and my dad and I watched a little bit of that SMU game. Then he flipped it. He's like, oh, they're down by 21. It's the fourth quarter. Yeah. So uh, it's pretty amazing to hear they came back triple overtime and won the game. Yeah, um, you're you're forgiven because as someone who's been there many a time, I had lost hope until I somehow found it at the very last minute. So 
it was uh i mean it was it was a couple kicks that tulsa missed uh which probably shouldn't have happened a couple blown calls by the refs that mm-hmm. really made it an ugly game at the very end but you know we're uh if we're gonna win we we'll, might as well make it ugly because we're smu right yeah i mean i and i've been to that stadium i think i've seen about probably like three or four games there um over the last decade and it's a nice it's a nice football field i, I really like it yeah yeah it's it's the right size venue for that size school and that football team and it's nice that they've actually built on site now as opposed to having to move people back and forth to like the cotton bowl and things like that right yeah which that was probably one of the first smu games i saw was like arkansas versus smu back in the 90s and it was at the cotton bowl and you got those like really hard bleacher seats you're sitting on and I mean, that, that place was very old school. But uh, Aren't they supposed to redo that at some point? Because it's been, you know, breaking people's tailbones. Since. I feel like they have a little bit over the, the last few decades, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I haven't been – I haven't stepped foot in there in a long time. Last time I saw that was uh, was the actual Cotton Bowl, and that was probably 10 years ago now. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. But – uh. Yeah, so I guess you were over uh, just on the uh, east side of Dallas. I was up in uh, north of, you know, up in Denton uh, Friday night. Went with uh, a special friend of mine, and I uh, went up there for a couple different events. And then we were like, well, you know, both of us went to UNT back in the day. And, um, you know, we were, we both, it was a Friday night, and I had a really long week at work. I was just exhausted, and I definitely needed a drink, so... We went up and uh, we're like, hey, let's go to the old bars. And so, you know, we visited uh, the square, you know, stopped in the loophole, which is one of my favorite establishments when I was going to college there. Uh, You know, a lot of these places have been kind of redone and modernized and just really nice, um, good food and really cheap on drinks compared to Dallas. Uh, And then we, of course, stopped down to the one and only Fry Street, which was uh, the heyday, you know, back in my heyday, that was the happening place. And you go there now and stopping in, you know, awesome places like Cool Beans and uh, Rip Rocks and Lucky Lou's. Uh, you know, it's some of it's changed and some of it's hasn't changed at all. But um, the drinks were well and, you know, it was a nice evening. It started to cool off a little bit, which I'm really excited that this is the last weekend where I'm going to deal with the 90s. And next weekend we're going to get into the 70s and 60s. So, yeah, yep. excited for that. So that was my question is, is are all the the new bars or are they like are, are all the old bars the new bars or the new bars the old bars have things really changed that much and i mean is it is it the same kind of vibe that you know fry street and everything had back when you were in college it's a little bit different because they they fence the street off and you can still cross the street because they have an opening in the fence but there's fences at each end so nobody can drive through okay. and i I wonder if that's for either security reasons or maybe there's been people, you know, jaywalked across the street and then they get run over. I don't know. So uh, not sure what the thing is behind that, but, you know, it felt safe. And, uh, yeah, there's some that were really cool places to go to. There were some, you know, like British pubs, things like that, that are no longer there anymore. Or some places have closed down and now it's more of like a modernized, like, restaurant slash bar. But you still have some of your golden gems there, which were definitely on Fry Street. And, you know, everything seemed about the same. It was just uh, <laughs> just feels like way younger faces because uh, 
going back there you know, and her and I were just kind of, you know, we, we stopped going there like the end of last decade. So it's been about, you know, a decade or so. And, uh, it's kind of like going back to elementary school, uh, in a way. So you're going back, you're getting a drink and you look around and you see all these like really young people <laughs> and then the music they're playing, like they'll play trap music or, you know, uh, mumble rap or something. And I'm just like, okay, this is, uh, this is not what it was like, uh, when I was here, like, especially in 07, 08, you know, that's probably when I was really hitting up those establishments. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. Um, just kind of, just to clarify for our listeners, Brandon and I used to drink a lot in elementary school. So that reminded <laughs> us so much of all of this. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think Carl was a 2% guy. I was more of the whole milk, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most dad joke thing I could imagine. Uh, you know, I have my moments. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. But uh yeah, pretty good, pretty good uh area. Uh, you know, I I have always liked going back to Denton and you know, that that's definitely if you end up, you know, like if I were to have kids or you have kids and they go to college there, I'd I'd feel pretty safe with them going there. That's good. I uh, I remember talking to someone and and saying, Hey, mountain girlfriend, you know, we need to we need to go down and check out this place and that place and uptown and somebody goes no no you don't want to do that anymore there's nothing down there and i was just thinking to myself <laughs> like oh my god like what has changed i'm so out of the loop now but yeah apparently uh, uptown dallas is is not the the rowdy place it used to be and and now it's all in the lower greenville area and you right. know Max henderson and that kind of thing so which is fine i mean when i was in school Knox, or I'm sorry, not Knox Henderson, but Lower Greenville was a place you went to go sit, you know, see people get tased. Oh yeah, and, uh, true. Yeah, it, now it's now it's really, really very swanky uh, as far as as far as it used to be. So Knox Henderson's a cool area. Uh, there used to be what was it called, Vickery Park, something like that. Uh, I'd go in there and they'd have some amazing food, and they'd be next door to. Uh, Oh, what's that pizza place? It's like a wood wood oven or brick oven pizza. Oh, um, this is good radio. I can't remember anything. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's, it's next to the, it's next to the porch. I know that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a good area yeah. though. I it's just parking sucks up there. You get up there, it's bumper to bumper, and but as soon as you get out, you're walking around. It's like, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I like yeah, that area thank, a lot. Thank you, Uber. Yeah, we used to get like Barcadia and that kind of thing, and I don't even know. And uptown, there was like BBC and and. Uh, you know, there was, I don't know, Kung Fu and all kinds of stuff. McKinney Avenue Tavern. Oh, all yeah. these really cool places that, you know, and like half of them are shut down now. So I, I don't know what's, what's going on down there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the evening ended where we left like right before all the young kids were, were heading out. And so, you know, she stopped back by my place and we were talking about, you know, scary movies and horror movies and stuff because she's really big into that like I am. And I'm like, well, let's watch a movie. And so she chose American Psycho, and I'm like, okay, yeah. Oh, haven't, shit. Haven't seen this in a while, and it's a great one. And so the beginning of it's just funny. You know, whenever they're, you know, Geralito's like, oh, check out my card. It's, it's, uh, I forget what he said, something that's like. That's bone. Yeah, that's bone, you know. And Patrick Bateman starts sweating, drops the card, and he's like, it's nice. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's and, and for those of you who haven't seen American Psycho, that's the most PG moment in that entire. Movie. Oh yeah. So yeah, things yeah. Uh, things go off the chain. It's it's that's a that's a weird movie. I love it. It's a weird one, but it's also psychological, and it's like okay, 
did this happen or was it in his head? I don't know. But I will say that that movie is a thousand or maybe a billion times more violent than Joker. Really? Which I saw Joker Thursday night, opening night at 8 p.m. I went with uh, my roommate Daniel and another friend of mine, Peter, showed up and uh, saw it on the XD screen, you know, so it was, uh, which thankfully the aspect ratio, it's, it takes up the entire screen. So I'm glad that Todd Phillips uh, filmed it in that aspect ratio. Uh, So yeah, um, for those of you that have not heard Joe or not, have not seen Joker, um, Carl and I have talked about this and Carl hasn't seen it yet either, but uh, Carl's kind of uh, convinced me to go on here and give a spoiler review. So if you have not seen the film, I urge you to pause now and uh, I will put in the description of this episode when you can fast forward if you do not want any uh, spoilers or anything like that, and then you can resume play then. But if you have seen it, just go ahead and continue listening and join me through the journey as I go through my take on Joker. So yeah, we sat down and going into this film, I was very, I I trusted what Todd Phillips was going to do just based on what I saw in the trailer and that it's Joaquin Phoenix. And I know that he only signs up for, you know, something he firmly believes in and it's going to be great. Uh, But going into this, I was a little bit nervous about how is this really going to play out as an origin story and how is it going to tie into Batman? I knew that Thomas Wayne was going to be in it. I knew based on the trailer, a young Bruce Wayne's going to show up at this gate and which is Wayne Manor property. Um, and how's this all going to tie in and why is he showing up at Wayne Manor and you know, all this stuff. And so it's real interesting. The film takes place like in 81, I believe, or 82. And you just, it starts off in the film and you see Arthur Fleck, who is, uh, who he, portrays and this guy is a struggling guy who lives with his mother is trying to keep you know make ends meet and uh you know she just lives with him in this apartment and he's you know dancing as a clown trying to sell for like a mattress shop or something like that going out of business and these kids go up and beat him up and you just see that you know not to get too much into you know beat by beat what the story's about but you see him just going through life and and just getting beaten down and and no one's there to really love and support him except for his mother. But there's something off about his mother constantly wanting him to check the mailbox for a letter from Thomas Wayne. And it's like, what, what does he matter to you? And she's like, oh, I used to work for him. He's a great man. And I keep writing to him every day, but he's not writing me back. But I, I feel like he will. He's a great man. And, and meanwhile, you know, it's, there's so much corruption and crime going on in Gotham City. There's trash everywhere. It's everything you can imagine that looks just like it's ripped out of uh, the film cells of Taxi Driver. Uh, Early 80s New York. Very seedy, yeah. Uh, porn theaters everywhere and just, you know, trash and garbage and, and you know, people just getting beat up and mugged left and right. And uh, And so, you know, given this, Thomas Wayne is more of, you know, trying to do good. And that's something the Wayne family's only always been uh, in the comics as well as, you know, and some films have captured that, like the Dark Knight trilogy, and that they're always trying to do their best for Gotham and, you know, make a difference. And uh, so Thomas Wayne is basically running for mayor. And so he's on TV a lot. And uh, eventually you see Arthur Fleck, he's on all this medication and you, you can tell his mother's a little off, but he's trying his best. And so you're rooting for him in the beginning, but slowly but surely things start happening and progressing where 
you know, he's getting set up at his job and then he gets fired and, um, you know, eventually he's starting to lose his confines of, you know, just staying rational and, you know, he's having a few outbursts. And uh, the other thing that really made sense with me is he laughs a lot, but he laughs in the most inopportune times. Um, you know, he's trying to be a stand-up comedian and he actually goes and observes in a club, uh, another comedian up there and he's in the back on the table writing down notes. And while the comedian's saying funny jokes and everybody's laughing, then the comedian's setting up something. And when they're not laughing, Arthur's laughing and it's a very disturbing laugh. And this, disturb- well, that was actually something, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. That's something that actually he talked about with, uh, with how he developed his laugh, right. was mm-hmm. like that there is a condition as far as, you know, random laughing is concerned and like the most inopportune social times and that kind of deal. And that was something that he, I, I won't say that was, he was something he was clearly afflicted with, but that was something that he wanted to bring into the picture as kind of a, uh, like a point as far as his acting was concerned throughout this film, and like what he based his laugh around. Right. And that's exactly what I was going to bring up. And he does have this condition and he carries around a card. And if he's uncontrollably laughing, he hands someone and says, you know, please excuse me. I have this condition. Please return this card to me. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But eventually he ends up wrong place, wrong time where, you know, he ends up uh, fired and he's just, he feels demoralized and he's riding this subway and he's about to get home and he sees these like, you know, basically these Patrick Bateman type guys who are just all suave and whatever in this, this CD subway, uh, trying to talk to this female who's sitting there minding her business. And they're like, do you want to fry? Do you want to, do you want to try my fry? Like, you know, they're just totally just being assholes. And so, you know, eventually he looks over and then he can't help, but he starts laughing. And so they're like, Oh, what's up with the clown? Cause he's all in clown gear still. Mm-hmm. So he goes over there and they, they start, you know, laughing and make fun of him. And then, you know, sure enough, uh, they start beating him up and he's beaten up and he got a gun from one of his coworkers and ended up, ends up using it and kills all three of these guys. And the third one, you could tell it's like, as soon as it happens, like he's starting to get tinnitus in his ears, but adrenaline's going and you can tell something is changing neurologically in him. And after he kills him, he's running and he stops into some you know, restroom. And as soon as he shuts the door, this awesome scene starts to happen where he's just slowly dancing and doing this sort of like almost a Tai Chi type thing, but it's going to this haunting cello or or violin. And at first I was like, I didn't know how I felt, but that like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because you could see him evolving into like, he's going this downward spiral, but he's becoming what becomes the Joker. And so you could just tell where he's he's had enough of, you know, society's always beaten him down and he's never been he's never had anything good happen to him and now it's like now things are starting to make sense and killing someone actually made him feel good. And so eventually he, you know, gets back home and uh certain other things happen throughout the film. Um man, it, I know you want me to give a spoiler review uh you, you don't have to do the whole thing if you don't want to but i mean like you if you want to save some mystery but yeah there's uh i know there's some twists and turns that really you know set this movie apart there are but i kind of feel like when are we going to talk about this again um so whatever i'm going to go for it so do it you come to find out that his mother is writing these letters to thomas wayne when she goes in the restroom and he finally is like home 
and opens up the letter and sees like the these pages written to Thomas Wayne about how she she misses him and you come to find out that they had an affair together like a long time ago because she used to work for the Waynes but she was fired and placed into like mental hospitals and things like that because they were saying she was crazy which is a very classic move of the rich and powerful and corrupt and you know they try to discredit people and like oh she's crazy she shouldn't know what she's talking about you know so she apparently had this affair with Thomas Wayne and that she ended up having an illegitimate child and that child from Thomas Wayne is Arthur Fleck oh wow so it's like oh shit like this is going some some different you know turns here so he's like he never knew who his dad was just thought he like grabbed a pack of cigarettes and left or whatever and so now he's going to thomas wayne's home ends up seeing bruce for the first time he's outside playing in the front property and goes up to the gate does a magic trick and gets him close and starts, you know, makes him smile. And then Alfred comes up and he's like, you know, you need to get away from here. And he's like, I'm Penny Fleck's son and I want to speak to my dad. And he's like, uh, your story's all mix- mixed up. You know, you're not, you know, he's like, yeah, but that kid, that's my brother. You know, like he's, he's really believing it. So eventually he goes away before they call the cops and he sneaks into this event that Thomas Wayne is at and they're watching like an old Charlie Chaplin film in this theater. And when Thomas Wayne goes in the restroom, he follows him in there and starts talking to him. And Thomas Wayne's like, no, your mother's crazy and you're not mine. And ends up punching him in the face and walks off. So he has this really big hatred for Wayne and the Wayne family all of a sudden. And so, you know, while he was in the bathroom, he's like, no, you were adopted. Like your mother adopted you. And he's like, why are you telling me these lies? So he, he finally goes to like uh, some Arkham hospital and finds the case on Penny Fleck uh, and his mother and, you know, pays some guy some money for the information, but the guy's not going to hand it over to him. Wayne's up ripping out of his hands, runs down into the stairwell and looks through it and sure enough sees the adoption thing. So he was adopted and he's not Thomas Wayne's. I feel like I'll touch on that here in a sec, but um so he's he's looking at it and it goes through and he's trying to find his name and it just says unknown and i'm like that's perfect because the joker has always been unknown you're not supposed to know who he was so i like that arthur fleck is kind of like just a made-up name that was just given to him at adoption but you never know who he really is and where he really comes from so yeah it's it's really awesome but the fact that his adopted mother was crazy you know like she ended up having a boyfriend at the time who abused him and she was abused and, you know, she was just not all there. Um, and she ended up like having a heart attack is in the hospital. So after he finds out all this information, he smothers her with the pillow and kills her and doesn't give two shits about it. Like he feels, he feels relieved. And, uh, so a bunch of other things happen. Um, and so eventually he starts to really lose his mind. Uh, and that's when he changes into the Joker makeup and, and the costume and stuff. And, um, you know, he had been trying to, uh, become a standup, uh, comedian and, you know, he went up there and it was really awkward and didn't go so well, but he, you know, this late night guy played by, you know, this guy Murray played by De Niro noticed it, played a clip while he was visiting his mother in the hospital. He saw on the TV and of course he was making fun of him. Well, they thought it was so funny 
what if we bring this this joke of this weirdo on the show and then he does whatever we interview him and so right when he's really losing his mind they call and leave a voice message and he talks to them and they're like yeah murray wants you on the show he's like really okay and so he dresses up and this is the first time you see him dressed as the joker and he's bringing his gun with him so you're like what is he going to do and uh so the moment he walks out as a joker you know they're playing this awesome song uh that you know you usually hear at like sporting events and he's dancing down the stairs and that scene was awesome um and so he ends up uh making it there to to murray's deal and he comes out just completely you could tell he's gone like he's he's saying these jokes and and it's like the joker is finally here in the room and he's talking to him and uh you think he's gonna kill himself and so he's like he's like you know De Niro goes well you know tell us some jokes so he goes through this joke booklet and he's about to say this one joke he he wrote you know as he's trying to develop and it was like you know um hopefully my dad my death will make more sense than my life and the word sense is like c-e-n-t-s like sense because he was always broke but mm. he thought it was funny because it had a dual meaning, you know? So he was going to read that, but he read it. And I think at that moment, I think what he's planning on doing was shooting and killing himself uh, while on the Murray show. But instead he says a joke and he shoots and kills Murray right in the head on live TV. Fuck. And then goes up to the camera and starts like saying something and then the police tackle him. So they arrest him. And meanwhile, all this is going on. And the one thing that, that uh, you know, started all this, whenever he killed those three guys on the subway, they're looking for him. The only description that is that he was a clown. And there's a lot of unrest in Gotham, and everybody really uh, dislikes Thomas Wayne because he talks about most of the people of Gotham City are just clowns. So everybody starts dressing up as clowns, protesting Wayne. Well, all of a sudden, that same night, that uh, the Murray show's going on where he kills him, there's a huge riot going on, and, and it's like looks like the riots of L.A. Like, streets mm-hmm. are shut down, cars are on fire, and so the police are transporting him to the, you know, to the jail, and he's in the back, and he's got, like, a busted lip, but he's looking out, and everybody notices it's him, and they're like, look, it's, it's the Joker guy, and they're all, you know, clapping and stuff, and he's, like, smiling, and you think that the movie's just about to end, and all of a sudden here comes like this ambulance going out of control and it hits the car and it flips over. Well, some of these, these guys, these, these, uh, rioters and, and Joker masks go up and pull him out and lay him on the top of the police car. And eventually it shows him like coming to out of consciousness and he gets up. And as he gets up, like you just hear people going, get up. And there's just a huge mob of people surrounding the police car all in Joker masks. And they're all just, you know, stuff's on fire. It's at nighttime. And so eventually he, you know, he's like kind of out of it, but he, he gets up and he's got like a light on him and everything. And so he takes blood that's out of his mouth and smears it like this and turns around and he's like, it's real emotional. You know, he's like got his tears in his eyes. And then he does that dance on front of the car and everybody is like cheering. And that's, pretty much how it it ends and you know just i i left out some other things that are kind of spoiler territory but um that's my spoiler review on the joker and so the way it was shot the acting and and joaquin phoenix i couldn't even tell his joaquin and i think he lost like 58 pounds for this role from what i read but 
the directing, the, everything was amazing. And the more I, you know, oh, and also the ending of the film is probably the most important thing uh, for me was that the one thing about the Wayne family and how Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne died never made sense to me, even being a Batman, you know, lover all these years and having all the graphic novels. It's like, why did he take his family with Bruce out of that theater and into a dark alley mm-hmm. to then get shot and gunned down? Like, why go through a dark alley when you're, you know, the richest man in, in Gotham, you know, right. and, and in the world? And so when the riots are going on this at, at night, when they take the Joker out of the car and lay him uh, on, on top of the car before he gets up and gets out of consciousness, it splits away into... Um, people rushing out of a theater like all these commoners are rushing out because the riot is just spreading and the all of gotham city is basically just chaos and you see thomas wayne and martha and he runs out and they see all this fire and stuff going on so what does he do he diverts through the alleyway to try and find a more secure path and to me i'm like okay that makes sense and that's awesome and i thought todd phillips did a really good job writing this and one of the goons that helped uh, bring Joker out of the car was the one that guns down Wayne and then, you know, gets the pearl necklace from Martha and shoots her and then they run off. And, you know, I've seen that scene a billion times and, you know, like I think you and I've talked about it. We don't need to see it again for the Batman. And, you know, yep. it's like you get tired of seeing the same scene, but this one was done probably the best next to Christopher Nolan's version. Um, so we, we got, we got the, the summary locked in i'm i'm very excited about how this turned out clearly because you're excited about how this turned out but as far as what do you think todd phillips did the best and what do you think he did the worst in this movie the best i think he really captured the character development of you know who joker was how he becomes um he really captures a sense of society and how I, I really firmly believe not to get too political, but I feel like this movie came out at the right time because it's really talking about mental illness and what it is for people that are mentally ill that feel like, you know, kind of like some veterans coming back from war, you know, after Vietnam or any war, uh, you know, no one's really there for them, you know, compared to maybe back in World War II where everybody was lined up, had a parade for them and, you know, you're the most American person possible, that sort of thing. So it's all about society leaving somebody who's mentally ill just behind. And this is what happens when they're beat down and they're told they're no good. And, and I mean, this is what happens and and could eventually evolve into, you know, after going through a downward spiral coming, becoming something inherently evil. Cause in the, the start of the film, you're really rooting for this character. And then as he starts doing these messed up things, you can't root for him anymore. And you're just an observer at that point. So it very similar to how taxi driver is. And so, you know, from the, you know, the perspective of your, like regarding your question, I feel like that's where Todd Phillips did the best was just the character development. And, you know, the choice of, uh, the soundtrack was excellent. The, the music wasn't too in your face. And there were a lot of moments where there's some slow burn and you see a lot of what's going on and, the eyes of the characters. Um, The part that I feel like Todd Phillips could have been better about is you could tell where his inspiration 
he, where he's drawing from, which is the Scorsese films like King and Comedy and Taxi Driver. And there's some scenes in the movie where it's a bit too on the nose, where yeah. it's almost like, not shot for shot, but there's some scenes that are, it's almost like taken directly out of Taxi Driver. Um, for, and it's just brief moments. So it's really if you've only seen Taxi Driver, you know, one or two times or, or more. And that's really the only issue I had, but it, that's a very minor issue. and It's kind of nitpicky. So that's why, you know, on a grade level, I'd, I'd give this a 9.5 out of 10. Um, I'm sure on repeat viewings, I'll probably rank it even higher because I got to the end of that film and me and Daniel and Peter sat there and I was just like, wow, like just powerful climax, powerful story throughout. And yeah, we had to go to a bar afterwards and talk about it. Like we both, we each had to work. I had to get up at 6 a.m. the next day, but we went to a bar to continue talking about it because there was just so much to unpack. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. I like the idea of um, really, in, in most good movies will do this where they, they show that the villain doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like it's not, I, I think that that's, we've touched on this before, but kind of like justice league and stuff like that, where it's just like a bunch of superpowered people beating up on Muppets. Like they give, they give more credence to the good guy and, and that backstory than they do the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's what makes a great, a great movie of that type anyway. I mean, especially if you're going to do an entire character study on, on someone like that, you have to prove that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, there's obviously a lot that you have to get right, but the, uh, especially when you've got multiple characters and things like that kind of facing off or figuring out their motivations of characters and stuff like that. Uh, this is one of the few movies where you really had the, the time to explore that because usually you just take most of it for granted and you're like, that Joker's insane. He's a bad guy, you know? I mean, and and not to take anything away from the dark Knight rises and all that kind of stuff, but they, uh, they do intentionally gloss past a lot of the Joker's backstory because that's the way the Joker has been written by and large. I mean, outside of stuff like, like the red hood, you know, and right. Which would just kind of present as possible scenarios. You know, that's what I liked about the graphic novels. There's possible scenarios and Elseworlds type thing. And and this kind of felt like, you know, like like we've heard you and I have talked about this uh, on radio in the past that this is just going to be a one off and he's not going to be in the Batman franchise. This is just sort of like a what if type thing. And, you know, some people aren't going to like that because they want everything to tie together like Marvel and you know, if that's not for you, then then okay. But you know, I thought this was a perfectly executed film, and I I really liked the sort of different turns and and things that Todd Phillips did and kind of explored. And it's like, well, what if this and what if that? You know, I I didn't expect all of that. And it, what's also great is I didn't feel like this film was too short or too long. It explored everything I wanted it to explore, and I felt like it was a perfect runtime. Um, and- Kind of, kind of like how there are some authors that will write for uh, in in a style that prevents their work from being able to be translated over to ebook is kind of like a big fuck you to kind of the way things are going or the way things are the direction things are going that kind of thing. This kind of give gave me that feeling of yeah, we get it. Like cinematic universes are the new thing. Yeah, uh, they're the old thing. They're the new thing. They want everything to tie into each other. Uh, that's how you're making a lot of money. 
and they were just like, nope, we're going to make a giant budget art house film, and it's just going to thumb its nose at the entire industry right now. And people loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, look at uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Look at the scores. The, I mean, it, as is pretty typical with this type of movie, audience scores are off the charts, and critic scores are ho-hum. So I think that uh, I think that's just kind of part and parcel for this kind of movie. And, and it's it's do not look at that kind of stuff and say, I don't want to go see this movie. Go explore it on your own because, you know, just because critics are paid to, to go give you their information and stuff like that. And just like we love to share our our you know, thoughts on movies and and the way things have been and the way things are going doesn't mean that you don't need to have an opinion of your own. So go explore it. Yeah. Um, and two, you know, all the buzz and the controversial stuff people were talking about before the movie came out. I feel like a lot of those people uh, that were so, so-called critics didn't even watch the film. Uh, yeah, there are some violent moments in this. There are some stuff that you're just like, oh, wow, like that just happened and, and it might be a little gruesome. But all in all, I think he only has a body count of five or six people. Uh, and so, you know as far as the violence goes is, I mean, Rambo was far more violent in you know, the stuff I told you, like sure. that was more violent. Deadpool is more violent than, than what this is. Venom was more violent than this. So, you know, those people like they're, they were full of shit. And I think it, it just kind of goes back to that whole PC culture thing, but some people just want to watch certain things fail, you know, and I don't know what it was about this film that they wanted it to fail. And I know that there was, you know, a tragedy associated with the Joker character and one of the dark Knight films, but you know, this really doesn't glorify and you're not supposed to root and cheer for the Joker when he's doing these things um, and becoming who he is. You know, if anything, it's just, it's a character study. It's exactly what it is. So, but yeah, there, you know, there, there's some interesting things about the film. Um, yeah, I'm surprised I just gave a spoiler review in front of you and you, you haven't seen the movie. That's something that I always pride myself on. I don't spoil anything, but you wanted it, so you got it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that I think the no spoiler thing, mm-hmm. you know, is, is very subjective, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, like, if you're, if you're really like, hey, man, I've invested a lot in all of this movie coming out, you know, all, all this entire franchise things like, let's say that I've invested all of this time in uh, Marvel cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a lot of time to invest on a storytelling level, whether without Scorsese's approval, where I want to find out how it concludes, even if it, is very much like an in my face, like, yep, called it that kind of thing. Like I, there is an element of surprise that I enjoy, but there are some things that just, you don't need to be surprised about. I mean, like, I'm going to go see it. I'm going to go enjoy it for what it is. And yes, I might have your interpretation of things in the back of my mind, but I think I'm a grown ass adult. I can make my own judgments on stuff. So I'm not, I'm not overly concerned again, like the spoiler thing has evolved with me. I remember when I was in about, I don't know, it was like fifth grade or something. And my buddy was like, Hey, you know, have you seen Armageddon? And I, before I could get a word out, he was just like, Bruce Willis dies. I'm just like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you got to be kidding me right now. Or or like a sixth sense. That's another one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he says he sees dead people. Oh, okay. Well, that, that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, and you're just like, he's actually a ghost the entire time, and you're like, oh, wow. Like, that sure. That was probably one of the biggest twists, you know? That was a great twist. That was. The, that's how M. Night Shyamalan cut his teeth, but... Yeah. Yeah, dude. I, uh, I've evolved on the spoiler thing, because there are a lot of things out there that are way, way more worth getting upset about right. than, than this, and you know, go, go enjoy it for, for art. I think this, this probably came about the whole spoiler thing and, and how it's become such a massive thing for everybody, I think is, uh, is partially because movies have very much split into two different realms, mm -hmm. right? They've gone from basically being what we used to experience as cinema pretty much all the way through, even like the early nineties, you know, people didn't get up in arms when you spoiled true lies for them, right? <laughs> true lies. But then if you go all the way to today, we've kind of split into an artistic path, right? Whether or not it has big budget behind it or not. And then we have uh, like a cinematic experience path. Mm -hmm. And yes, the, the lines can blur every now and then, uh, you've got movies like Creed and that kind of thing, which I'm sure if you asked Sly, you know, Hey man, is this art? He'd be like, yeah, you know, but it's, I mean, it's still in a cinematic experience. I mean, it's still a giant sports movie when you get down to it. So yes, on the Venn diagram of things, the overlap section is a lot larger than I even, I care to admit, but the ones that the movies that people get really up in arms about when it comes to spoiler reviews and things like that, I believe are more of the cinematic experience level of stuff. And I think that that comes from, it's less about an interpretation kind of thing. And it's less about, you know, Oh, you're going to get out of it. What you get out of it kind of thing. It's more of like a, I want to figure out how the end of this roller coaster ends without somebody fucking spoiling it for me. Right. So I, who's to say i mean at the very end of the day uh will i get upset over some things more than others yeah like i said i've been more emotionally invested in some movies and them being made than others um i may get that way about let's say one of the two matrix projects that's coming out soon but we'll touch on that later yeah but, uh but yeah i mean all all in all this seemed to be more of a experience and less of a well don't don't give the ending away because that's the payoff mm -hmm. so i'm i'm going to go for the experience and obviously those of you who have listened through this hopefully you got something out of it but uh go go see the joker because that's what i've gathered yeah well again i'm going to put in the description of this episode after i edit this in the in post you know to let you know and i'm sure those of you that skipped forward you are now resuming play uh, so I won't spoil anything else, but, um, you know, I figured that it'd be the right time. Cause I know a lot of times we'll give reviews and we don't know if, if certain people have seen it. I feel like a lot of people are going this weekend to see it. So, you know, by the time this episode airs, uh, you know, I, I think most of you out there that listen to us and subscribe, which thank you again, uh, for joining us on, you know, our, our fun journey of doing this for you guys. So we absolutely love it. But you know, I figured that most of you listeners out here, out there would have already seen it and, and kind of want to, you know, this is a conversation. This is like a very, you know, 
uh, fun but interesting conversation to see what people think of this film. So, you know, that's just my perspective as, you know, Batman comic guy. Um, but uh, a lot of people are uh, going out and seeing this film. Uh, Box Office Mojo reported that uh, the Joker has now set a record in terms of largest opening ever in October domestically and has pulled in $93.5 million projected. Damn. Sleepy October gets a shot in the arm thanks to the Joker, which is very exciting. We'll have we'll have some big budget movies coming out that nobody really expected this year. Is October going through kind of a shift, or does it always just kind of like there? there's some stuff here and there that uh, – matters more than others uh, i mean yeah there's a there's, I, I think like Gemini, gemini man and that kind of thing where it's like they throw a shit ton of money at it you know like it's more again yeah. more of an experience than you know let's say joker which has a shit ton of pedigree behind it and also an artistic you know uh i guess flair more so than something like an egg Lee film about will smith killing will smith yeah uh well, I, I feel like October is also one of those where, yeah, you might have your dramatic films. Um, I think in the past we've had some like gangster flicks come out. Uh, and, and then, of course, you got your, like I said, slasher horror films, of course, with the month of October. Uh, but I think the, the movie that set the record before this one, I think was at 60 or 70 million. And that was Venom. Uh, Venom mm. released in October. And, of course, Venom 2, I'm sure. I don't know if it'll make more, but it might. Um more than I think the first Venom. I don't know if it would if it's going to surpass what Joker just did because that's pretty impressive. Well, be easy if you like action, drama, history, or much more. You'll love Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Absolutely. That's uh, something I think all of our listeners should check out is Audible. Uh, but yeah, so the, yeah, there also there's also some other stuff. There was an article that came out. Uh, what was it about De Niro and Joaquin? Yeah, so that was kind of interesting. And I kind of expected this from a from a ego standpoint. And that's not to say that the, the both De Niro and Joaquin are insufferable people on their in their own right. But I know that they both come with some baggage when you when you have to direct with them. Uh, they bring a lot of themselves into that room, and they have very different acting styles. I know Joaquin is pretty famous for his more brooding and method spontaneity, uh, and De Niro is very old school in how he likes to do, let's say, read-throughs, which is what this clash was about, uh, apparently on the set. De Niro, or I'm sorry, before they got on the set, De Niro requested from Todd Phillips that everybody do a read-through of the script. And that seems to be pretty much fair game for everyone except for Joaquin Phoenix, who goes about things, I would say, fairly different than most actors. Uh, he does not do read-throughs. And I think that has to do with his kind of, uh, at, you know, at that moment kind of interpretation of his character that he's working on. And also the fact that he's always in character the entire time that he's, you know, methoding through this entire thing. So the, 
the interesting thing came when they were forced to work together and apparently they had a meeting uh, because, you know, Joaquin kind of mumbled his way through the first read through and was kind of like, I don't, I don't like this. I feel sick. Like I can't believe I had to do a read through. I have to leave now. And De Niro and uh, Todd Phillips and Joaquin all went up to De Niro's office after some coaxing. And uh, apparently uh, what was, I got to find that quote because it was ridiculous. Um, yeah. Well, and, and too, just for our listeners out there, if you don't know what a read through is, read through is basically everybody's got the latest version of the script, which the script can change at any time. And I'm not saying dramatic rewrites, but just the conversation pieces, maybe things are said in a different way or a different uh, tone is used or, you know, or they could change up and, and add on some things to make the scene a little bit longer or shorter. And so read through is everybody's got to copy the script out. They talk through it, um, you know, just in a room and go back and forth and very much like what you expect if you were in a high school play, you know, you're going to be in the room, you're going to talk about it uh, and read it as if you're that character. And then you go and film the scene. So it's kind of like setting that expectation and, and making sure everybody knows the flow of things, just speaking it out loud. So De Niro is very much old school in that he likes doing that. Joaquin, he's all about improvising and just getting into the moment of it. Right. And uh, apparently the end of this meeting uh, was capped off with De Niro holding Phoenix by the face, kissing him and saying, it's going to be okay, Bubba, which by the way is the most De Niro thing I've ever heard in my entire life. So I think that was, uh, was Yahoo entertainment that gave me that gem. So thank you for that. Well, I read an article about the, and I probably should have had my notes in front of me, uh, but the actor who ended up playing Thomas Wayne, he, uh, there was an article that came out, I think he spoke to Deadline or somebody, and, you know, they asked him a few questions about the movie and, and uh, what it was like to film with Joaquin and, and what was different about the set, and he said that, yeah, I mean, there were constant revisions for uh, one particular scene where you know, uh, he ends up, you know, uh, Joker and, and him or, you know, end up meeting for the first time. And I won't get too much into that because I already covered that in the spoiler review. But, uh, you know, what is said between them and, you know, and that's really not a spoiler because it's shown in the trailer where he punches him in the face. But what is said before that? And so it's a very important scene. And there were constant rewrites even going up to like five in the morning. Uh, it was rewritten. And so, he got those overnight, the actor did, who played Thomas Wayne. It was like trying to study it overnight. Went in early for the shoot, and as soon as he walked on set, was handed a brand new version of the script again for that scene. <laughs> so he's just, so they're like, okay, uh, you know, let's, let's go ahead. Instead of read through, we're just going to, we're just going to shoot it. And he was like, guys, I, I don't even know what it says, you know, and, and, and Joaquin was there and, and he laughed and he was just like, he's like, I don't know what it says either, you know, and so that made him feel a little bit more at ease. He said that was really the only tense time for him as an actor to kind of like go through something like that. But the fact that Joaquin was in the same boat with them and, and laughed about it and said, it's okay, we'll do multiple shoots. It's fine. And then Todd Phillips kind of like, you know, calmed him down. Then they went and did the scene and, and did it perfectly. So yeah, it's, it's real interesting how movies are made, you know, and, and sometimes things can change at the last minute if you're the actor and you're just expected to, you know, be Michael Jordan and just perform, just do it. Do you think uh, movies that have, were kind of like The Hangover and stuff like that prepared Todd Phillips for doing a movie that had that many egos involved? Because really, if you look at the stuff that he's done, you don't you don't see a massive amount of 
like ensemble cast that are just you know big players and stuff like that but that one stuck out to me at least as one that you know he had done the the threequel on and and he was able to juggle those guys pretty well i mean i think they all still talk to each other so it's not like a complete schism or anything like that happened so i'd imagine that i mean my take on it is he he had a little bit of dabbling in doing the ensemble cast already even if it was at kind of a lesser level and the fact that he was actually able to corral these actors into to performing, especially the way they did, is kind of a huge feat. Well, Todd Phelps writing this, uh, he said as he was writing this, he had a picture of Joaquin Phoenix on his desk. He could only envision him playing the character. So it's pretty amazing that he was able to accomplish that and get him to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I feel like with the, the Hangover films... Those guys are all pretty easygoing. I could see all of them becoming friends in real life, and they're all improvisational actors. So with that, I could see where that was probably a far easier shoot. And the fact that, you know, there's not – there's some details, I guess, in the Hangover movie, but it's it's just for – they're just comedic, comedic plot points, right? Uh, right. Comedic, uh, you know, plot devices and moments that happen versus with the Joker, it's uh, – there's a lot more nuance. So, yeah, it was – pretty amazing to see his take and I, I hope Todd Phillips continues to do these types of films because man if he does he's definitely like our next Scorsese our next Nolan um, I'm very excited to see what Todd Phillips does going forward Todd Phillips director of Road Trip now <laughs> now director of Joker so yes very very different kind of director and writer now but i think that's probably for the better from what it sounds like mm-hmm. let's do some movie news let's do it so uh recently we had a couple trailers drop we had birds of prey which i can tell you that i honestly was only excited about ewan mcgregor being a part of and they showcased him about five seconds worth in this trailer uh so <laughs> i'm i'm pretty worried this is going to be another uh and like we discussed, a movie where the the original writer or the original writing and the original screenplay and everything had a much more developed villain. Mm-hmm. And what we get is just kind of like a shitty caricature. Yeah. And uh, and I, I see this going this direction from only what I've seen in the trailer, but also some of the information we've seen about the major rewrites and reshoots and stuff like that that we've had. Um I mean, did you get anything of value out of this trailer? It was just kind of a, like one big smash cut, right? Well, you know, and that's that's really what it comes down to, right? Like we had the, I guess you could call it a teaser trailer, but it was only, what, 20, 30 seconds long that was shown yeah, before. Slapped together, yeah. Yeah, before it. And this came out, of course, around the same time Joker came out because I saw this trailer. Well, I, I first saw it on YouTube, but it, it showed before Joker. And thematically, I mean, they're completely different. It's almost like they're in completely different universes. You have this very ultra-serious movie, and it's a character study, and then you have over here Birds of Prey, which is, you know, exactly what you would want in a Harley Quinn film. I wouldn't want some, like, law and order type of, you know, serious thematic film for a Harley Quinn. And, And it was already established as well in Suicide Squad what she's about. So I think this is more of an exploration of Harley Quinn than it is the other characters in Birds of Prey because it looks like they're more ancillary, like they're just surrounding her. 
and and part of this journey that she's going through and goes through a breakup with the Joker and thank God we're not going to see Jared Leto as Joker ever again I'm hoping um but I definitely can tell in this film she he's not going to be in it but yeah it looks more like a Harley Quinn film if anything so there's a lot of colors and you can tell she's going through a lot but there's going to be a lot of elements of fun and so it kind of looks like a little bit of a continuation on some of the fun themes that were you know explored with her character in Suicide Squad so if anything you know yeah I I see Black Mask where he should be this evil guy and, and yeah I think you're right it's it looks like more of a caricature of himself than anything else and you don't see him in the mask so I'm hoping that he does have a mask uh, but yeah I, I think this film just kind of looks like it's just going to be Something fun to go see, and you know, with an all-female cast and a female director, they got that going for them. So, you know, I'm hoping that this is at least better than Suicide Squad, but I don't think it's going to be a smash hit or anything. Right. That that's that's a pretty good way to describe it. That, yeah, they do have Margot Robbie's kind of uh, narration thing going on during the trailer. Yeah, which she nails it. You know. Yeah. You hear her talk in real out. life, and she's th- this thick Australian accent, and. And then you see her in character. It's yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, she she is a good actor, and and I think that uh, I think it's I can't draw a beat on you and McGregor. He's done some some stuff that's blown me away, and some stuff where he just seems like he's phoning it in for a paycheck. Yeah, and you know I'd like I'd like to believe that he is going to act his ass off, but I also don't see him having any kind of direct you know, connection to the source material material or anything like that. So, well, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but there is a film coming out also in, uh, well, this is coming out late this month in October and that is Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to the shining. And it, he portrays Danny grown up and the final trailer, which we saw in front of Joker as well, uh, looks really good. And I can tell oh, he's going to yeah. act his ass off in that. Um, yep. so that one I'm looking forward to, and you'll definitely hear a review from me on this show uh, when it comes out. Hopefully, you know, it's been busy b- b- between you and I um, <laughs> with everything we'll going done. on. One of these days we'll have to go check out a movie together. Uh, so, I don't know, either it'll be that or something else coming out here in the near future. Life is hard. Yeah. Oh, man, what else is going on? Let's see. Oh, okay. We got some Guy Ritchie action mm-hmm. with The Gentleman, which uh, I thought... I thought it looked pretty, pretty good. It's kind of weird to see uh, Charlie Hunnam in this role, and it's not because he can't act, because I think he but can like in act. a British gangster flick. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's kind of a weird direction for him, especially from what he has done in the past. I'm not saying that Pacific Rim is like the only movie he's ever been in, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, you know he has been in uh, in some more lower budget better acted stuff than that it's just strange seeing him as the gangster yeah in a guy Ritchie movie but uh there's some there's some standouts here i think hugh grant was a big standout yeah i didn't even know it was him at the at the start yeah that was uh that was a killer beard on that man (laughs) yeah so that was that was pretty good and then obviously colin farrell was going to play colin farrell um Matthew McConaughey, that is an interesting choice as a, a t- antagonist for a Guy Ritchie film. Yeah, it's like the Westerner versus the British gangsters, and it's uh, you know the American versus the Brits, and and it, it yeah it looks real interesting. 
yeah. So I'm 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 very curious about the angle they're going to take on this. I'm going to go see it because it's a Guy Ritchie film, and yes, a lot of Guy Ritchie films suffer from exactly the same thing every single time. But I will go, I will go enjoy it nonetheless because I'm a sucker for that kind of direction style. So yeah. it's uh it it is original if it doesn't have any of its own flaws. So, um. I mean, is there anything special that you would take away from the Gentleman trailer, by uh, and large, besides Hugh Grant being unrecognizable and with a even better accent than normal? I thought it was interesting. You know, Hugh Grant's kind of the elder statesman of the of the group. It looks like, uh, but coming from uh, the older, like I'm, I'm a huge Guy Ritchie fan of like the old films of like. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Snatch. Right. Snatch is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, and he's done some other things. But since then, you know, he's kind of gone off. And I think the film before this was Aladdin, you know. So he's kind of gotten out there. And, and now I feel like he, it's a return to form. He's back in his wheelhouse doing what he's best at doing. But we're talking like, you know, Snatch came out, I think, in 99 or 2000. So it's like 20 years later, does anyone really care? Is it going to work? You know, uh, plus I think it's written and directed, um, kind of like what he did with Snatch. I thought it was interesting that Colin Farrell's not one of the lead actors. He just looks like he's part of the crew. Um, right. But he looks a little bit different. He's got eyeglasses and uh, he, he looks a little different compared to the the Colin Farrell we're used to, where he's got the leading role and his hair is perfect and all this other stuff. So uh, it is going to be interesting. I, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm, you know, this isn't, I don't think it was enough in the trailer to really kind of give me a conclusive excitement or not. So I'm yeah. interested to see what the next trailer is going to be like. I, I definitely didn't get a whole lot to sink my teeth into, but I will say that uh, Guy Ritchie writing and directing a film better than Guy Ritchie writing or directing a film. Yeah. That has been, that has been my experience at least just because his act, his direction, uh, the editing that he puts everybody through and the way that he writes all lends itself to each other because of the kind of schizophrenic pace that everything runs at. And if you have Guy Ritchie kind of doing direction on somebody else's film or something like that, you get good direction, adequate direction, but it doesn't have as much of his flair to it as when he is in charge of the entire product. So at least that was my feeling going into this. I was excited because it seemed like it was a hundred percent a Guy Ritchie affair. Right. Yep. I, I totally agree with you on that. And you can definitely see that this is a Guy Ritchie film and not too many cooks in the kitchen or it's not, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever the picture company wants it to be. So yeah, that's a pretty interesting. And another trailer that we saw before Joker, which uh, just came out this week, which was 1917 directed by Sam Mendes, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, one of the greats. And I like the the trailer that came out previously to this one, but this one shows a little bit more how epic it is. And you see uh, one of the old planes in World War One crashing and they're running away from it. Uh, you see a little bit more in terms of the the grand scape of, you know, the whole scope of the battlefield. And one thing that really interested me in this is that throughout the whole trailer, I, I recognize one thing, and that's you're you're seeing the two main characters in, almost in every scene. So that kind of uh, 
led me to go on to, you know, the rabbit hole, which is YouTube. And I saw behind the scenes and Sam Mendes is talking about it. And the camera is actually on this huge static wire type grid thing. And the camera operators are basically just pushing and, and following. And there's a team of about three or four people, including a sound guy running through the battlefield and the camera and basically the movie follows these two characters the entire time and never breaks away from them. So it's not like, you know, in Private Ryan where it'll break away from the characters and there's something else and then it goes back and, oh, it's the next day. It's It stays with them throughout their entire journey. And I think if you're going to really show World War One through the lens of what it was really like to be there and being in the trenches with these characters and seeing everything they go through, yeah, this is the way to do it. But it looked technical as hell. I mean, they had vehicles with the cameras and whenever they're running they're the vehicles are you know always with them so yeah it looked very challenging from a directorial perspective but that gets me even more excited for this film but uh what did you think of uh the trailer and how it looked uh i've, I've been excited about the movie before i ever knew that roger deacons was a part of it um when they when they started showing it again i was like oh sam mendez does a war flick you know, I and I was like, that's that's pretty cool. I respect Sam Mendes. I expect I respect what he does. Uh, one thing that I that just completely sold it for me was the the shooting of it, like what you said, where they follow these characters the whole time. It's shot in a way that it's supposed to look like it's an uncut, like unbroken shot, and that is different than pretty much every war movie i've seen mm -hmm. uh, i'm sure it's been been done to some degree uh before uh but i mean like obviously there are a lot of pov kind of stuff out there um it's become more popular more recently at least some big blockbuster stuff but from a 1917 uh like war you know world war one movie perspective it's hard to beat that kind of storytelling especially when you have the writing and directing of Sam Mendez involved here. And what I mean by that is that dude knows how to shoot action. Yeah. And the fact is you're going to get a lot of high octane action, even if it's not necessarily, you know, like the characters themselves, they're doing it like that one shot with the plane crashing was a perfect example of like the environment fighting against them kind of thing. I saw that in the trailer. I got excited, but I'm more excited about seeing that as an unbroken shot and seeing what they do with flipping that around and in following the characters. I think you're going to get a lot of really cool sweeping shots that you don't usually get because you'll get the, the, the editing room, you know, kind of, it'll hit the floor and they'll go and they'll chop it up to make it a little bit more intense or they'll do the, you know, the close-ups on the face, that kind of thing you don't get that option really in this kind of setup. So you're probably going to have to draw the camera out with, with the characters running away from the, the plane that's crashing, that kind of thing. And then you're going to have to immediately, you know, kind of do like a roadie camera kind of thing or, right. or get it behind them running into another situation in which they're, you know, getting blown up from. So that, that was the thing that got me so pumped about this movie uh, obviously having someone like Roger Deakins attached is pretty bitching. And, uh, I, it's just, it's, it's going to be awesome. Even, even if the movie's content sucks, the way it's going to be shot is going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can't wait. World War One's something that there haven't been too many, you know, uh, 
blockbuster type films uh, based on. But so yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, what are what are some other news out there? Oh man. Um, so okay, this is what I alluded to earlier. Uh, no, you had me. You had me looking at World War One. Oh yeah, real yeah, quick yeah. Because I was, yeah, I was no, really. No. What else? I was kind of. I was kind of like, what else was out there at the time? Yeah. And you know the one that I thought of. This so stupid. Uh, Flyboys, mm. with uh, with James Franco. God. Yeah. My my hero, James Franco. No, I I only saw parts of that movie, and and it was exactly what you think of a James Franco helmed World War One movie would be like about flying. So, well, it was a it went off into a, this whole love story thing too. So, you know, it's, that's, uh, that's enough of, that's enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're good. Yeah. Flyboys. Fly it was a movie. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, matrix. Yep. So, uh, that news that we've had in the past where we said, Hey, the Wachowskis are making a new matrix movie. That is true. They are making a new matrix movie. And they have Gary Ann Moss and uh, they have Keanu Reeves and, and a lot of the original cast returning uh, in their respective roles, which is really, really cool. And that's been muddled together with other news that I didn't really know was on the radar until recently. And that was the fact that there has been a Matrix movie that's kind of in just been in gestation for a long time now. Um that is actually a project by Zach Penn of all people. Hmm. Um, so if you know anything that Zach Penn has written, um, it is not what I would call the best. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. So well, I'll, I'll give you a flavor of it. Okay. So the, he had, he had some hits like last action hero, which if you're a big Arnold fan, towards the twilight of his years, if you've not seen Last Action Hero, you're doing yourself a massive disservice. Mm -hmm. um, he's also done some stuff like Inspector Gadget, which, side note, also getting a reboot. But yes, he did the, I'm pretty sure he did the Matthew Broderick uh, Inspector Gadget. He did X2, X-Men United, which was decent. I think a lot of people going back to, if you just look at the first three X-Men films, a lot of people say X2 was the best, uh, you know, and yeah. of course there's a lot of hate for the third one, but well, it was better than the, the other first. thing I was, I, yeah, you, you, uh, I'm not going to bury the lead here. Yeah. The fact <laughs> is X2 actually, yes, you're right. X2 was my favorite of the three original mm -hmm. movies. Uh, unfortunately he also had to deal with writing X-Men The Last Stand which mm. so he's done the best of the trilogy and the worst of the trilogy. So, you know, whatever that means, uh, he did the incredible Hulk. Um, and then somehow he redeemed himself with the Avengers. Um, he wrote alphas, which if you've seen that sci-fi series, that's actually a halfway decent series. Um, yeah. And just anyway, the bottom line is he's done a lot of movies that have been not what I would call, the best yeah and somehow uh, i don't know if he got like a blessing 10 years ago by the wachowskis to involve himself in the matrix trilogy plus animatrix and all this kind of stuff uh but somehow he inserted himself in this world and of course now he's being very ingratiating to the wachowskis kind of like please don't yank my project away and uh it's it, this is the reason why we're getting 
conflicting casting news mm-hmm. right now is because Zach Penn's thing required a you know younger Morpheus, a younger Neo, and that kind of thing. While the Wachowskis with Matrix Four uh, is likely not going to have those elements, and if they do, I don't know if they're ever going to tie into each other. So uh, it's been made very clear that they're they're concurrent projects and they're not reboots, but they're exploring different aspects in timelines of the Matrix series. So okay. um, I can tell you which one I'm more excited about. Mm-hmm is obviously the Wachowskis one. Yeah. Um, however, we've mentioned, I've mentioned before, my my distaste for some of the weird recent Wachowski stuff, uh, which has been very muddled and off the rails. Uh, whereas maybe Zach Penn, since he did Avengers and that kind of stuff is his last movie, is really on a high note. So I'm, I may very well get the script flipped on me and Zach Penn's is really the good one, and Wachowski's is the crap one. So, so Zach Penn's only writing this. Is he directing it too, or is it just writing credits for now? I think it's just writing credits okay. for now. Okay. Well, you know, it's kind of like um, you know, with him being involved with the X Men franchise, and you know, I'm gonna look past that he wrote uh, Last Stand. I kind of feel like maybe Fox got too many cooks in the kitchen for that one and i'm just gonna say that maybe that's what happened but sounds like overall this guy's got a pretty good track record of stuff uh and you know the thing about the matrix uh, and i'm sure you've seen the animatrix right yeah yeah i I love the animatrix it 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 really just kind of like explored more about this universe and like what are some other people and what did they experience and you know that type of thing and kind of like a what if type stuff but I feel like the matrix is such a cool concept and such a cool world uh, to explore that there, there's so much more gold there. And one can say, yeah, but what if this turns into like a star Wars type thing? Yeah. It's a possibility where we get a bunch of prequels we don't want to see, but I challenge you with that by looking at the X-Men franchise and looking at, you know, you got X-Men one, two, and three. Then you had uh, X-Men first class. Everybody loved that one. That was a prequel. People were like, I don't know if this is going to work. Then you start seeing the casting news and some legitimate casting and how well it was written and directed. So I'm going to give this a chance. Um, I'm not as excited versus what the Wachowskis are going to do, but I think I'm more interested in what the Wachowskis are going to do because how do you bring back Neo and what, you know, is there something even worth seeing 20 years later? So. Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm going to be excited for both. Uh, I'm going to give this Zach Penn guy a chance. We'll see what he does. Yeah. I think, uh, I've, I've talked myself into it while discussing it on the show. I mean, like it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those things where I, I was very out on his ability to do this, but you know, there, there is a high likelihood, like you said, that there is a lot more involvement here beyond just Zach Penn writing Zach Penn stories. And it's, it's not the first time I've seen something get written really well and then torn the hell out of. So I, I will give him a chance. Um, and I will definitely evolve my, my frame of reference on the Wachowskis and what they have done because while they have been not exactly on with their past few projects, um, 
in my opinion. There is clearly a love for the Matrix mythos. You know, they've created this world that, you know, they've they've borrowed it from other literary sources and stuff like that, but they've made it their own. Uh, let's see what they decide to do with it as long as they don't just completely you know go bonkers and yeah. wreck their own franchise which is completely possible right yeah so anything's possible here uh but yeah i'm i'm excited either way to see what happens yeah uh last last bit of news before we sign off here well let's end let's end on a fun note all right let's let's talk about the likelihood of a revenge of the nerds sequel because mm. this is something that was almost uh it was just mentioned probably friday or saturday and i will be honest this falls into the how the hell do you do that now <laughs> kind of talk yeah did you ever see porkies oh yeah of course i, I think right. any kid growing up saw that and there's one particular scene where you're just like you're a kid and you're just like oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah red red blooded <laughs> american scene. boy yeah exactly you got the uh you've got you got to see porkies and you've got to see revenge of the nerds which by the by the way like when you're when you're growing up in the 90s and like your dad laughs to himself and is like porkies man oh that was a movie right and then you're like oh shit like that sounds pretty good i want to go see that and it seems at the time when you're younger it seems like it's the craziest thing you'll ever see mm-hmm. but as as time goes on you realize that it's relatively tame by most of today's you know movies and everything as far as edgier stuff right yeah well so, it's it's that locker room type you know, humor where a bunch of guys are on a football team or baseball team or, you know, whatever it may be. So, yeah. Uh, But I could see why older generations, like, really loved it versus, like, if you were to watch it now, it's, like, not the most controversial thing out there. Right. And that's not the only – that's not the only time in cinema where that's happened where they were just, like – Hey, by the way, let's let's show a bunch of like random naked women and we'll all laugh about it. Right. right? Like and then there was like uh what the hell was it? Um another thing is like Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like based off this like serious, you know, treatise over, you know, the Vietnam War and like the the idea behind war and stuff like that. And what the movie they made was just a movie about blasting bugs and then like showing boobs and yeah. O- okay. I mean, fine. I enjoyed that movie because it was campy yep. and it was stupid. Yep. Uh, but that's probably the last time I can think of where a major motion picture capitalized on just like randomly useless shower scene. <laughs> yeah. So can can a movie that is in a world that we have gotten stuff like book smart and super bad and and coming of age tales that weren't just completely just like gratuitous like nudity and in idiotic plot points and stuff like that like can we can we get that kind of feel back now is that something we even want to explore anymore or do you think that something like a revenge of the nerds could actually be uh, even rebooted in a way that could be kind of in the mold of a super bad where it has actual weight to it, even if it is funny. 
So, I mean, has this been confirmed to be a reboot or is it going to be like a sequel and it's some of the original cast with some new people later on? I think this is confirmed to be a sequel, but at the time that they did this, I think that it was also part of the, hey, Disney bought Fox. Let's see what we can resuscitate. Right. Yeah, which, as we've talked about before, there's some dangers about going into certain franchises that have been like pretty much dead for a while and they were celebrating their heyday, but is it really worth bringing back? So based on what you asked me, I feel like today's society, there are more nerds than ever compared to when this came out. Um, Fair enough. You know, there, yeah, you had some back then who were practicing their, you know, uh, building small computers in a garage or, you know, <laughs> figuring out how to solder things and you know, whatever it might've been back then playing chess, going to the chess club. Uh, but you look at the films that came out during the eighties, such as the revenge of the nerds or breakfast club, or, you know, uh, showing the people who weren't the most popular in class, weren't the most popular in high school. And a lot of people gravitated towards that. And so, yeah, there is something special there that even decades later, you see it all the time in films, whether it's the Marvel films and the guy playing, uh, I think he was playing Tetris or something real quick in the, in the, in the deal. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. I remember that in the first Avengers. Yeah. Y- so, yeah. <laughs> you know, which was excellently written in there of, of, uh, just a, a very nerdy moment, but I feel like there's the nerd culture is, is real. It's, it's, uh, as I'm going to sound like an old man, as the kids say, it's woke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. As those chillin say out there, it's woke, it's very real. And, uh, I think it's a very celebrated culture. I mean, you look at the size of Comic-Con now, so, Bringing something like this back, and hopefully, if they get some of the original casts and maybe throw in some, you know, some really uh, good actors that kind of play nerdy parts, um, you know, maybe the guy that played McLovin or something like that, maybe get some Bill Hader in there. I don't know. There, there's so many different directions you can take it. I, I'm excited the more that you start talking about this, and I feel like that this would relate to today's society. I think it's really interesting what you brought up uh, and you may have touched on it without even really meaning to, but it was the uh, really the discussion of how nerds have kind of uh, begun to own pop culture and, and, and it's no longer kind of this ostracized thing. So if that's the case, then while I agree with you in the fact that there's a lot of directions you could take this that would actually be positive today, it makes me wonder if it has the same gravity as an underdog story as it would have say back when it was originally made. Right. Because we've got, yeah, I'm sure there are dudes that are getting wedgies today in school. (laughs) Like that's the wedgie factor is still pretty high. However, you know, there, there is kind of this tacit realization that nerds actually have a place in society and there's enough of them out there where they respect each other, unless you're just a complete spaz, you know, then, then you're, you're probably getting beat up. Like how nerdy do we have to get for these guys to be real true underdogs? Yeah. It's, you know, it's always interesting. Cause I think back to high school and I'm sure it was like this for you and everybody else listening out here. It's kind of like, if you weren't the quarterback or the star cheerleader or the homecoming king or queen or whoever, like if you're not the most popular kid or the richest kid or whatever, uh, you're kind of an outsider a little bit. And I think it's 
become less and less because, you know, I think we're seeing more and more in, in culture and, and society and film and, you know, take your pick TV, uh, that if you're not a nerd, then you're not, it's weird. It's, it's like a reverse dichotomy. Like you're, you're more popular and you're more successful being a nerd as an adult versus when you're in high school. But all those really popular kids in high school and everything you see maybe aren't as successful down in life versus the nerd. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, but yeah, you brought up a good point too. Um, with, uh, like super bad, uh, you know, another movie I was just thinking about when you were talking was Napoleon dynamite, you know? And so the, there's right. some really, really good stuff out there. I'm, I'm very surprised they didn't make a sequel to that, but I'm kind of glad they didn't, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I feel like that the nerd is celebrated in American culture today and, and especially on film. Yeah. And, and so we'll, we'll have to see where this goes. Cause I find this to be more engaging than a inspector gadget reboot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't need I another think, one of those. No, I don't think anybody does though. So, <laughs> uh, if French Stewart would come back for inspector gadget three, that'd be great. Oh my God. I know. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, what if it was Andy Dick? What, what do you, what do you do with that? I, I don't think is Andy Dick out of jail long enough to make a. a I don't even know where he's at these days. No, I'm fairly certain the last thing he was famous for was like last week when he groped an Uber driver or something. So I don't think he's gonna be in acting anytime soon. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, but great pick for Revenge of the Nerd sequel. Uh, Andy Dick. Let's go ahead and and throw (laughs) his throw his hat in the ring he's Man. he's a true underdog because he is always inside of jail if if they get rick moranis back for the third ghostbusters movie i want him to be in this as well it, it, what is rick moranis doing well he so it's a sad story and um basically his wife uh died i think she had cancer but she she uh, tragically passed away and this was right towards the end of his last big films, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And around like mid 90s, he basically swore that he's he's retiring from acting. And, you know, so good for him to stay with his family and, and just become, you know, that that family man. And, um, you know, there's a lot of actors that have done that, that were had really successful careers in the 80s and 90s. And he was one of them. But he's a very beloved actor. I think everybody loves Rick Moranis. Um, so I'm hoping that he does come back to Ghostbusters to reprise his role, but if he does, I would love to see him in a Revenge of the Nerds sequel. Uh, I think he would fit perfectly in it. Can we get an Expendables for actors that have just retired from film in general, like have like fat Val Kilmer and fat Brendan Fraser and Rick Moranis and everybody get together Joe all to achieve Joe Pesci all to achieve a single goal. I think that might be the best movie I've seen ever. That would be pretty good. Throw throw Daniel Stern in there too. Have him uh, have a uh, you know a sort of uh, reunion with Joe Pesci. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I, I would. I would. I would get in line for that. Now I don't know what they would be doing, but uh, I'm almost certain that it would be a straight to digital release, <laughs> and no one would ever see it. They'd be having a lot of fun, is what they would be doing. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, they would at least have good stories to share. So, well, speaking of a lot of fun, this was a lot of fun talking with you, Carl. We could keep going and going, but, uh, I know. Well, I kind of want to save, uh, some of the content and, and stuff I was just thinking up on the fly for next episode. Uh, stay tuned. Again, thank you guys all for listening to us. Again, check out our sponsor, Audible Books. 
you can listen to uh, anything that you like uh, from there. But again, go to audibletrial.com forward slash SLM. Uh, we want to hear from you. So please do try and leave a voicemail for us. Of course, you can hit us up on Sensibly Loud on Instagram and Twitter, as well as Sensibly Loud Media on Facebook. If you want to call us and leave a voicemail, just dial 972-885-9361. Name the the name of the show that you want to leave a voicemail for, whether it's us, whether it's the Outfield Podcast, Just Peachy, any one of our great shows under the Sensibly Loud umbrella. Definitely feel free to check out their amazing shows as well. Carl, I want to thank you again for joining me today. And to our listeners out there, Stay tuned and check out next week's episode of Sensibly Loud Radio.